0: There comes a point in any classical concerto, usually near the end of the first movement, when the conductor relaxes his or her battle, the orchestra finishes playing at an unresolved or ambiguous chord, and the soloist has the stage to him or herself. During the next minute or so, maybe more, maybe less, the player might take us on an abbreviated journey through the themes of the music we've been hearing or simply take one of those themes as the jumping-off point for a dizzying sequence of musical acrobatics. This is where the soloist shows us what they're made of, what musicianship and what technical skills they're able to muster. After a while, we reach a trill, an undulating shimmer, just at the right point on the scale. The orchestra comes back in and, with a flourish, draws the movement to a close. That is what is commonly called a cadenza, one of these. Heed Kramer there with the Vienna Philharmonic and Nikolaus Aruncourt with Mozart's Violin Concerto Number 4 in D. As the name suggests, the cadenza is especially associated with closure, the final cadence, delaying that end point and instead inserting a moment of invention and decoration. In late medieval music, the cadenza or cadence lived up to its Latin root, cadere, to fall, by typically adding a descending figure in the penultimate bar, such as the last notes of the scale, to simply underline the fact that this was the end of the piece, the musical equivalent of a full stop. But artists, being what they were, couldn't just leave it there. It became an opportunity for a final flourish, often improvised at the spur of the moment, and the idea grew. This element of improvisation, not something we associate with classical music as much nowadays, is central to the idea of what a cadenza should be. Even if the music has been composed, it should sound like it's just been created out of thin air. Going back to the very threshold of the Baroque period, still really the late Renaissance, here's an example of a vocal air ending in a cadenza but with many embellishments along the way as well, composed by Giulio Caccini, a composer associated with the birth of what we now call opera from an intermedio a highly stylized and complex stage presentation that in this case foretells the coming of the golden age we encounter a sorceress who invokes the power of jupiter with the words luna," i who could make the moon fall from the sky Emily van Evera, singing that air by Caccini with the Taverner Consort. After this, the concept of the cadenza grew and increasingly created opportunities for self-display, perfect for that aesthetic of whirling, unending brilliance that so inflamed Baroque culture. We have several accounts of what this meant, especially in terms of vocal music, and even if they are satirical, it does suggest that the practice of ending an aria with a cadenza created new problems as well. In 1722, Benedetto Marcello, in his comic account Il Teatro alla Moda, paints a truly disturbing picture of the typical prima donna. The modern virtuoso should sing cadenzas that last for an hour each and stop frequently. To take a breath, she should always try to sing the highest notes, which are beyond her range, and during every trill she must turn and twist her neck. She should make it clear that she does not want any arias that have a soft, dying-away kind of ending, for she loves a flashy finale and exit to the shouts of Eviva and Buon Viaggio from the audience. Ideally, of course, the cadenza was meant to reinforce and sum up what had come before rather than distract from it. And by all accounts, things were getting a little out of hand. As late as 1815, we have a record of one singer at La Scala Milan who sang a cadenza that lasted 25 minutes. This instrumental use of the voice put it in direct competition with instrumentalists. Indeed, if the English writer Charles Burney is to be believed, this is what literally happened in the case of the singer Farinelli, who found himself in a musical duel with a trumpeter and one. While we can only imagine what hijinks vocalists got up to, luckily we do at least have one or two examples of instrumental cadenzas from this period that were written down. The manuscript of Vivaldi's Violin Concerto in D, nicknamed Il Grosso Morgul in reference to the Mughal Emperor Akbar, has a transcription of a cadenza for the third movement, probably in Vivaldi's hand or at least contemporary with him. Adrian Chandler with La Serenissima and the end of Vivaldi's Violin Concerto in D. Il Grosso Mogul. The expectation of a performer to be able to improvise, or at the very least present an embellished cadenza, carried on into the classical period, one of the few hangovers of Baroque musical culture to do so, no doubt, because it was popular with audiences and players alike. Within the context of the clean lines and structures of classical sonata form, the cadenza also creates an exciting feeling of tension, a moment of carnival disrupting the order with its sudden emphasis on the presence of the performer playing. The very nature of this disruption, especially when viewed in retrospect by early 20th century critics, became something unsettling in itself, with the legendary Donald Tovey even describing the cadenza as the saddest chapter in the story of the concerto. On the contrary, though, the retention of the cadenza reminds us of the robust ruggedness that underpinned the classical ideal, as well as its understanding of the craft of music and the craft of musicians. Here, for example, is forte pianist Andreas Steyer with a cadenza of his own disrupting the surface of Haydn's keyboard concerto in D. <laughs> Andreas Steyer with the Freiburg Baroque Orchestra under Gottfried von der Goltz, with part of Haydn's keyboard concerto Number no. 11 in D, published in 1784. The status of the cadenza in the Romantic period, with its increased sensitivity towards all modes of creativity, became problematic and anachronistic. There was simply too much going on for a performer to step away from and in turn, composers came to use the convention of the cadenza to incorporate it within the overall scheme of the music. We can clearly see this transition happening through the five piano concertos of Beethoven. In the first two concertos, in traditional style, he simply leaves an empty bar in the score at the point where the cadenza comes, leaving it up to the player to supply his or her own, and obligingly he later wrote a few himself that pianists could use. In the third and fourth concertos, Beethoven writes a cadenza into the score. The pianist can still use an alternative if they wish, and people have, but they're so good, would you really want to? Then, in the fifth concerto, the emperor, no options are allowed. At the point in the score where the cadenza comes, Beethoven places a note to make himself as clear as possible. Do not play a cadenza, but instead proceed immediately to the following. As the Romantic period unfolds, with notable exceptions like Brahms's Violin Concerto, The cadenza remains only on these terms with the performer's interpretive input expressed in the subtle arts of phrasing and articulation rather than wholesale invention. By the time we reach Mendelssohn in the 1840s and his violin concerto in E minor, the cadenza is entirely incorporated within the score to the extent that he even places it at the heart of the first movement rather than at its end. No more a point of farewell, a flourish to mark the hero's departure from the stage, it has now become a moment of focus, a poetic utterance in the midst of life. Performing this for us now, we hear violinist Anne-Sophie Mutter with the Gewandhaus Orchestra of Leipzig under Kurt Masur.